This is Andrew Faust, Permaculture Perspectives. Today's session is a really lively conversation with Natalie Topa, who I'm really honored to have coming in to guest teach in our upcoming Permaculture Design Certification course, which I strongly encourage you to check out. Our amazing list of guest teachers, Natalie Topa, Ramis Kent, Larry Santoyo, and a whole other range of guests coming in. So give a listen to this conversation with Natalie Topa. Hope you enjoy it. From You're in Nairobi right now, is yeah. that correct? Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've been based here in Nairobi for, well, I've been in East Africa since 2005, so about 19 years. 19 years. And you said you had, uh, you were right, you um, grew up in, in New York State? I was born in Buffalo. My mother's from Poland and my father was from Ukraine, but um, I was born in Buffalo. And when I was about five years old, we moved to Denver. Yeah. And, and I, I don't think Buffalo, I mean, you know, Buffalo is not, it's, de it's definitely not like the part of New York that you're in. It's, you know, upstate New York is a very different uh, universe. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> And and what is it that you know is what is it that brought you to the work to Nairobi and and where you find yourself now? Well, actually, I was um, my background is urban and regional planning with a focus in economic development, which is one reason why I really like the stuff that you do at the bioregional level. Um, it just speaks to me a lot, you know, just thinking regionally, economically. Um, so I trained Thanks. as an urban planner, and then I was working in D.C. for a global firm, uh, working on projects all over the place, including the Susquehanna Greenway Corridor, uh, which is, I think, not too far from you in the East Coast, uh, mm -hmm. various types of projects. So I knew I wanted to be working abroad and applying my community planning and community development skills elsewhere, and then an opportunity came up <clears throat> To work on post-war town planning and reconstruction in South Sudan after the peace agreement was signed in 2005. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And was some of that through, I noticed that you, you'd done some work with, they're called, a, is it, do I have a right, that a Dutch refugee organization of some sort? Well, uh, the Danish Refugee Council, uh, DRC, um, but that was only for about the last five years. And mm -hmm. Uh, and also I, now I consult with the Norwegian Refugee Council as well as the Danish Refugee Council. So when I came to work in South Sudan 19 years ago, that's really, well, actually even before then, I've been working in displacement for about 20 years. I first started in the U.S. I was seconded to FEMA when they joined Homeland Security uh, to work on uh, post-hurricane planning and re recovery and planning in 2003. Or that was the year before Katrina. So we had hurricanes, uh, Charlie, Ivan, Francis, and Jean. I went there to work on the displacement, disaster displacement and planning at that time, and then came to South Sudan and uh, have been working in displacement ever since uh, with different agencies at different in different capacities. That's that's quite a quite a trajectory, quite a, a really. Um, impressive scope of work that you're engaged in really important work um i imagine it's the kind of work that continues to um get worse i mean displacement right is is a pattern that um is i i would suspect i i would want to hear from your you know field experiences is it something that you're seeing an expansion of and um and let me also just back up and do a little and do a little setup i'd love to would, would you mind if I give a little intro and just share a little of what you've, you know, what you've uh, written and, um, you know, sure. a little about your background? Great. So this is Permaculture Perspectives. Excited to have Natalie Topa here with us. Natalie's going to be teaching in our next online permaculture design certification course, which I'm very honored to have her joining our team. Uh, Natalie will be with us on February 25th in that course. And Natalie is a regenerative designer and trainer who works in agro-system restoration with communities in forced 
displacement. Natalie has been based in East Africa for almost 19 years and works hands-on conducting practical training with agencies in vulnerable communities and fragile and conflict zones, as well as highly degraded ecological contexts in Africa, the Middle East, and Southeast Asia. Natalie emphasizes passive design for water resilience, resource circularity, and the importance of seed sovereignty in communities affected by displacement. Natalie is also passionate about natural building and the integration of circular and regenerative systems in the built environment, camps, settlements, and urban and rural infrastructure. So really <laughs> awesome to have you here and appreciate that depth Thanks. of explanation and, and giving us a context of your uh, your your permaculture and regenerative work. And uh, yeah, just it's really inspiring to be able to hear some of your life experience and field notes applying this discipline that's near and dear to me that I feel I've been in comparison to you career-wise kind of parochial and doing these things that are just kind of like staying on the East Coast, staying in a microcosm of climate and circumstance that's pretty comfortable for, you know, I often call my homesteading experience where I went and built a place off the grid in the mountains of West Virginia and spent eight years on that project. I call it self-induced deprivation in order to learn how (laughs) permaculture works. Meanwhile, to sort of, you know, to to sort of presuppose a little bit, you know, whereas you're applying this in real situations where there's real need and that isn't something that has to be self-induced. Those imperatives that make <clears throat> this type of design approach um, evidenced as something that works when the chips are down for human beings. I don't think we've been doing any things differently from one another. I mean, uh, we're both looking at how do we how do we figure out solutions? You know, we see problems. How do we create systems based solutions and thinking to the problems that we see around us? Um, mm-hmm. I don't think you have to work in displacement or in conflict to see problems. Uh, it's about you know how do we use our our creator given minds. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I say that very uh, agnostically, um, in in a way that solves problems and that is also underpinned by issues of social justice, right? We we both see things that we agree with in the world around us, regardless of where we stand politically. But you're like, hey, you know, I wish the world wasn't like this. Um, I wish this wasn't happening. Uh, I wish it was more like this. Uh, I think I can I can add value here. So whether it's placemaking. Uh, community design, um, food systems, it's all we're all we're all on the same journey trying to create a better world around us. We're just looking at uh, different problems from different angles. Um, but you know there are more solutions than there are problems. <laughs> so mm. I think that um, people in our regenerative culture, uh, that's what brings us together is the is the focus on the solutions and less on the problems. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for that. Very much agree that, you know, a big part of what has inspired me and drawn me to the permaculture community and and paradigm, I would say, is the solution-oriented mindset. And we need to design our way out of what arguably is a, I seem to be using this word a lot, self-induced disaster situation that we're creating, or as um, as Naomi Klein's disaster economics know how to how to i mean often i i think it is right you know it's like the first thing to do to get out of a hole is to stop digging and then in the industrial economy in places like the northeast it's evident that we just continue to be digging ourselves into deeper and deeper challenges when it comes to resiliency and better degrees of autonomy or improved quality of life for everyone um so I appreciate I appreciate the perspective there, and also I'd I'd love to hear a little if you would if you would indulge me in telling a little of your own um, say personal journey in the the direction that you began to use the term permaculture and regenerative to describe uh, if those are terms that you use to describe the work that yeah. you're doing. 
Yeah, and just what um, what's your journey with that with that uh, community and that that application per se? Okay. Well, first, I want to say I'm, I love that you brought up Naomi Klein. Um, I have read the book Shock Doctrine, which is the concept that you have policymakers whose motives might not always match our own, uh, but they're really prepared and on standby with a bunch of um, tricks up their sleeve, just waiting for a community to suffer in disaster. And then the minute a community or a population is reeling from that, we're so disoriented that that's the time to strike. Um, and, and introduce policies that would otherwise seem completely extreme and unacceptable. And that's why I think that as the regenerative or permaculture or whatever you wanna talk, call it um, community, we yeah. actually need to have our own um, counter shock doctrine, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. we, and, and that's one thing that, that's probably the only thing I miss about living in the US that in Chipotle is um, having that sense of civic agency, right? Um, I, I'm a resident of Kenya, but I don't vote here. Uh, I don't participate in a city council or public hearing process. I can't offer my um, ideas uh, and counsel on how to improve the things around me. I was very active in that regard in the US. Um, but so starting there, I'll just talk about how I came to be part of the regenerative movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, it started, well, first of all, you did, you asked about migration. Um, yes, I do see the displacement and human um, uh, human migration are increasing, but that is said with a huge lack of judgment <laughs> because uh, we we are humans. We have legs. We move. That's just that's what we do. Um, and my family, you know, my mother was an immigrant from Poland. My my biological father was a refugee from Ukraine. The person who raised me like a father was also a, a refugee from Poland after World War II. Um, so humans move, um, and for a lot of different reasons: for education, for work and employment, for safety, security, protection. Um, so there are a lot of different motives. I don't know if you're native to New York, but you know, no. even with New York, you know, so yeah. we we're always trying to sniff out where can we have better opportunity, where can our life be better or safer or more vital. Um, mm-hmm. So. You know, when I started, I was in college and um, I had a roommate from Brazil who was studying anthropology and she mentioned to me this um, concept of permaculture and the way that she described it in her Brazilian accent was I just got such a clear picture of like, wow, that is so possible and positive. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, and it sounded so nostalgic because it also, um, it sort of spoke to a way that I had also been brought up with my grandmother and the women in my family um, trying to use local resources and they didn't have a lot. There was a lot of um, poverty and uh, limited resources when I was growing up. And so, that vision is something that I carried with me. And then I had a number of people enter my life. Uh, you know, there's this saying, um, I'm the same person I was five years ago, except for the books I've read and the people I've met, right? So that's an ironic statement because it's because of those two things that we're not the same people we were five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, I met a woman called Anurada Mittal. Uh, she is the head of the Oakland Institute. And before that, she worked with Uh, the Institute for Food and Development Policy. So, you know, aside from just the food systems and sustainability, there was a lot that I was learning from people like Anurada and also in my sociology degree that really made me realize there's a huge lack of justice happening in our world. Justice around food policy, around land rights, around indigenous rights Um, in the U.S. where I grew up in Colorado. uh, So more exposure to sort of the four corners and Southwest and the native um, communities from the U.S. So when I decided to go into urban planning, um, well, I thought urban planning was something different. (laughs) First of all, I really wanted to go into radical planning and advocacy planning so that I could apply a policy lens to a lot of the injustices I saw in the world around me. But then when I got into my master's program and I started to realize how much emphasis was put on the built environment, you know, the they were talking about things that I could, I didn't care about at all, like the widths of sidewalks and whether or not buildings are made out of bricks. 
And I was thinking, hold on a minute, <laughs> we have massive socioeconomic injustices, we have entire communities that are economically marginalized, and I frankly don't give a rat's ass how wide those sidewalks are. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. um, fast forward to the to the end of my degree, when I was obsessed with sidewalk widths and building materials and public transit, because I started to realize that the way that humans construct our built environment has everything to do with the human experience, and oftentimes with social justice and economic justice and racial justice. So I realized that the world needs to be constructed for my mother, who is a single immigrant, petite, woman who is a single mother, um, very low income. And so I realized that affordable housing, access to safe, reliable, uh, convenient um, public transportation was key. Mm -hmm. Access to green spaces and pocket parks where she could go with her child, access to real whole foods. So for me, Community design, urban planning, the built environment, and then onto the regional scale, including both urban and rural, uh, was really, it all made a lot of sense to me as part of the same picture. When I came to South Sudan to work on post-war town planning and reconstruction, I found myself in a context where we had drought and flood every single year. Being a post-war zone, we had massive humanitarian uh, actors providing uh, humanitarian assistance during the dry season when there was drought and humanitarian assistance during the rainy season where there was just so much flood. And I thought, well, how, is this really real? I mean, here we have a context where it rains so much for six months that it can kill you. And then it rains so little for six months that it can kill you, right? So we have so much water and such a lack of water that they both those extremes are deadly. And that was really when I started to um, think much more about the, uh, the the natural ecology around me and, and in the bioregion where I was. South Sudan is the sump of this region, right? It's where the where the Nile River braids out and and uh, before it starts to come on a slow meander towards Egypt. So um, then I was working in development programs, not only in humanitarian but also development. You know, humanitarian recovery and development. Those are the three like emergency, not such emergency, and really kind of future planning. And um, I started to be involved in programs that were uh, that purported to focus on food security and development, economic development, but they really were geared towards doing things that I would deem totally unethical now, um, like provide, you know, uh, promoting the use of petrochemical poisons in farming, in fake seed, what I call fake seeds. I'm sure you may have heard of Dr. Vandana Shiva. She's someone who I went to um, India uh, to study with three times. And so I really imbibed her ethics around seeds um, because it was also tied to the the women in my family when I was growing up and saving seeds. So, um, you know, yeah, she's amazing. So just to, um, you know, wrap up that answer, it was all of these things from the built environment, post-conflict, the root causes of, of conflict and displacement and resource-based tensions in the community, Mm -hmm. I just started to, when I realized that that same permaculture concept that my roommate had told me about in college opens up a whole new world of unbleeping (laughs) the mess that we've made um, Mm -hmm. in all regions of the world. Yeah. And then after that, I started to do a, a multitude of courses, a uh, permaculture design course with um, at, at Jeff Lawton's site and Nadia in Jordan with Warren Brush, who's a, a, a brother and a mentor and a co-worker of mine now, um, mm-hmm. Brad Lancaster's courses in rainwater harvesting, Dr. Vandana Shiva, um, natural building, cob building, Tadalact, bamboo construction. So it really, I embarked on this this journey of really learning about all the different components of the system and it'll never end. There's no finish line to learning. There's only a starting line. But when I started to realize that we are part of a system and a cycle and we need to jump onto that moving bus, which is nature, that was really how how my journey started. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, that's great. Thank you for sharing that. 
and uh, especially intrigued to hear more about the uh, what your latest projects are. What what are some of the things that um, you know, sort of fast forwarding from where you took us to there timeline wise, um, you know. Totally just also want to underscore a number of those themes of uh, similar focus that I've had has been this, you know, as you mentioned, looking at the the regional scale, looking at city to country connections um, and finding that that type of thinking in the United States is, is woefully under uh, championed by really many planners at all that start to say, you know, could we take the work of, let's say, you know, Ian McCarg's design with nature and a lot of this GIS sophistication we have, mm-hmm. and instead of just sort of greening up business as usual, yeah. actually forward plan, master plan for year-round full diet food supply at, um, you know, at a, at a watershed planning scale. So I mm-hmm. really, really just Great to meet you and so inspired by some of what you just shared to continue to talk about ways that hopefully you'd be interested in collaborating on doing some some additional programming because I'm I'm ambitious to offer more things that are framed as permaculture for regional planning. I right now do a five-day course with um yes tomorrow that I'd I'd love to have you help with some of that material because uh I think this application at a regional scale, it, it's time yeah. has come and people are beginning to really see, oh yeah, this uh, the need is bigger than inspiring people to be backyard gardeners who are already inclined to go ahead and do that, right? Yeah. We, we, we kind of have a sense of people who've worked in this field, like who takes permaculture design courses is a certain kind of cross-section of the population, but this opportunity to take the strength of, of what we're experiencing the opportunities around to, to say, take it up to that next scale, I think is, is exciting to hear you talk about the places you've been doing that. I've heard the names of a lot of these folks, Warren Bush. I really, I don't have much experience internationally. So I really appreciate getting, a. A bit of a bird's eye view from you about what that landscape is like and what your career and experience has been in that field. So um, if the funny thing is that I don't have U.S. permaculture experience. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I know that in the U.S. there are some phenomena that, like, um, I think there's a sentiment that it's it's quite a white gardening thing in the U.S. in many. Right many circles, you know, um, very male dominated in many respects as well. That's, you know, that's the information that I get. But for me, that's totally not relevant because where I am, um, I mean, I live in Kenya and there are a huge number of East Africans that are creating their own micro movements, national movements. Uh, So I don't have that same experience. Um, It's, it's very much a local uh, initiative, people learning more, um, creating their own permaculture design classes. I wouldn't call them necessarily PDCs. Um, mm-hmm. but they do call them yeah. PDCs. But I, I, I would, I think it's more of like an intro to permaculture or a context specific permaculture course. Um, yeah. but not only in East Africa, but I, I do work globally. I've conducted trainings in Myanmar and Yemen, as well as, um, mostly East Africa, from Somalia to Uganda, Ethiopia, Tanzania, Kenya, Sudan, South Sudan. But it's really, you know, regardless of what you call it, there is a desire and a recognition and a celebration of indigenous. Let's talk about three different technologies, right? There's natural Mm -hmm. technology, there's traditional technologies, and then we have modern technologies. And natural technology is, you know, is ecosystem function. Traditional technology is how humans have interacted with that natural intelligence um, to try to solve problems and create opportunities. And now we're in this era of modern technology. I think there's a greater, um, an increasing celebration and recognition of all three of those in all parts of the world. So, um, it, and, you know, as Dr. Vandana Shiva says, the universe is not linear. You know, uh, Bangkok is not 
pre-Portland, right? <laughs> We're not all on the same trajectory of learning, but more and more all over the world, you have people who recognize the importance of ecosystem function, of bioregionalism, um, and of traditional technologies that have been used by ancient civilizations, all that ancient innovation. I think there's an increase, I see all the time, more and more um, respect and honoring of those traditional systems. And then modern technology, I feel like we're split two ways. You have some people, if in my mind, modern technology should serve the previous two technologies, right? So you mentioned GIS. Modern technology is good, good insofar that it is supporting natural and traditional technologies, but technology for the sake of technology makes me just dry heave, right? And I see that all the time in my industry because people are just trying to create an app or create a digital solution without understanding what the real problem is. So, um, yeah. So, you know, to answer your question about like where I am now and what I've been doing um, is that I was with the Danish Refugee Council for five years. Um, I, I came in hot. <laughs> I mean, during the interview, I told them uh, I will I only want to focus on ecologically based resilience. And there's two things I will never be involved in. Number one is petrochemicals. Number two is GMO hybrid improved seeds. So if you, in any way you have those approaches as part of your strategy, I am not the person for you. Um, right. And I told them that I have one goal, and that is to create a tectonic shift, starting with this agency, <laughs> a tectonic shift in our industry uh, in terms of how we deliver humanitarian assistance. So um, for the first while, it took me, you know, it took me a while to convince people within my industry as to the why, you know, we're not environmental agencies where our purview, our mandate is not environmental. But I was pointing out that it is because of environmental degradation and collapse, ecological collapse, that we do have these humanitarian crises. So once I, once I had a critical mass of people who understood that, I was getting more and more resources within my agency to establish demonstration sites um, and then the evidence just started to speak for itself. I mean, it was so obvious that, you know, farmers who before were only doing chemical farming now have an extended growing season beyond the rainy season into the dry season because of perennial stability, because of soil building and protection. So, um, you know, then it really, uh, it really started to go up from there, the, the capacity to establish more demonstration sites, do more training. Um, but I do also want to point, because I know that a lot of people, maybe from this podcast or from the PDC, uh, one thing I get asked all the time is, well, how did you get to where, what you're doing now? Mm -hmm. And the answer is, um, I did not quit my job by land and become a farmer, right? And when you when we all take our first PDC and our right. eyes are popping out of our head, like, what? Um, that's our first inclination is to get land. How do I get some dirt under my fingernails? And that is not the correct way all, all the time. I would say the permaculture pe permaculture has to meet people where they are. So if you're in IT, if you work in New York City and work in IT and you're like, I'm not really seeing how I can just quit my job and go live in the middle of nowhere and grow mm -hmm. tomatoes. You don't have to. You can. I live in a fourth floor apartment. I'm a permie, right? I do composting in my apartment. I have four bins of earthworms in my storage room. I have mealworms. I grow spirulina using my urine. I grow mushrooms. I, I cook crabs and calamari and prawns and all the offcuts and shells. I ferment them and make them a biofertilizer. Um, and I, I don't stop doing what I'm doing. I just, I'm doing, you know, I always say, don't do different things, do things differently. So stay where you are, but bring the concepts of permaculture to the work you're doing. If you're yeah. working in IT, or if you're working in a restaurant, or if you're working wherever, how do the principles of circularity, of reduced carbon footprint of the procurement? Here in Nairobi, you can get two kinds of toilet paper, virgin pulp, which is the most popular, or the blended recycle type, which is always the on the bottom shelf, the cheapo stuff. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
permaculture is about the choices that we imbibe and that we act on regardless of what our industry is. So I just want to say that, you know, for me, I was already working in the humanitarian space. And I saw once I started to get all these light bulbs through the permaculture lens, I was like, okay, I see so many problems where I am. I'm going to start using this lens to apply new solutions to that. So, um, yeah. Anyway, I was with DRC yeah. for five years. I left and I started my own, I registered my own company here in Nairobi and I've been uh, working independently as a consultant, but in the next two months, I will. I am slated to start a new full-time position with a new agency that I'm just keeping discreet about until, that, until that's finalized. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, I really appreciate the framing there and what you're saying about you know, that that is an approach that resonates with how I've been um, talking about what we focus on in our design courses is what I call meeting people seamlessly where they are. Mm -hmm. um, it's And that goes back, some of the people I think of are like um, Neo-Confucian philosophers talk about meet the student where they are. And, uh, you know, another way that we do that is by teaching about uh, advocacy work as far as design ideas that are urban in application for the infrastructure. So we teach a lot of examples of how do you redesign New York City with permaculture that helps mm -hmm. students who live in high density urban environments to, in addition to thinking about things they can do in their own home space, also thinking about what can they champion that is an important thing to change in the urban landscape that'll make a substantial quality of life difference, right? So, you know, that I think is really important. Do you, are you familiar with this, uh, this book called Creating Regenerative Cities? Uh, no, I don't think so. But I have, um, I have a number of other different such books. This one's written by Herbert Gerardet. He's a UN um, consultant and advisor, and it's focused on cities all around the world that have some decent working examples of what it looks like to begin to retrofit, you know, industrial urban centers, which is a whole other design challenge. And that's part of what we've really made a uh, focus area of our material is to do a lot of that research. So we have a bunch of anecdotals that we can basically kind of cobble together that students are like, oh, I see how we could actually redesign the entire infrastructure of the Northeastern corridor. Yeah, And then I, I encourage them that just like you're saying, what does it mean to apply permaculture when they graduate doesn't only come down to whether they're personally trying to be a farmer or a gardener. Yeah. It's as much about what are we getting involved in with our professional careers? Maybe in some ways, more importantly, can people begin to figure out how to create a livelihood that advocates for the very values and viewpoints that permaculture is encouraging them to consider more, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it. you know, I really wish that we would stop talking about permaculture as a food growing system altogether. It is about how we create a permanent human culture. And that has everything to do with our infrastructure, with our cities. Um, and that's why, you know, as I said, as, a, as, as someone with an urban planning background, I mean, everything yeah. that you're saying, you know, and we do, I do deal with infrastructure here in the rural African context, roads, bridges, dams, large dams, uh, markets. So for example, in Uganda, I designed a market um, where, it was it was a Danida, the Danish government funded project. It was about, I think, $20 million project to do infrastructure in 13 districts across Uganda. So, you know, the civil engineers took me to this place and they said, well, we're, we're designing a market. It's for the some of the displacement camps there. And at first, there's a number of things that first happen in my mind. Number one, where are the women located? What kinds of 
in what in which ways do the women interact with the market and how can that be done spatially in a way that creates the greatest amount of protection and safety and security and livelihood opportunity for women in that context number two where are the nutrient flows right <laughs> what are the nutrient flows in the market you have human nutrient you have organic waste and we were constructing a slaughter slab so that slaughter slab is just a concrete slab covered with iron sheet and then animals are slaughtered there every day and then all that slaughter waste uh just goes into that magical place called away <laughs> and uh -huh. creates yeah. disneyland of disease so what we did is linking all of that into more of a circular and by the way in that same marketplace there's going to be a lot of sales of charcoal from harvested local biodiversity which is contributing to drought and flood and all that other stuff um, but people need energy security so mm -hmm. um so, you know, two products I know we're going to be sold in that same market are charcoal and domestic fuel, as well as timbers for building. So what I so I said, let's do this. Let's make sure that the, the public toilets and the slaughter slab are located in the same corner downwind. Uh, and then let's flow all of that nutrient into a bio, large biogas digester. Um, and then the output of that can be a bio slurry that will pipe out into a bamboo forest behind the market so that we can have bamboo growing, giant bamboo, as a sale opportunity for the market for both biochar, charcoal, and for building timber. So, um, so you don't have to be a gardener <laughs> to think about that. And inherent in every one of those points of uh, kind of synergy that I talked about is a whole livelihood opportunity for people within the local community, right? So if somebody wants to, oh, and by the way, the, the methane generated by that biogas digester is already in use by about 10 women in the market who are using that gas for cooking and selling products in the market. So, um, you know, from, a, from the urban and rural infrastructure, <clears throat> There's just so much opportunity. And the difference, again, in the U.S., all of what we're talking about is a governance question, right? Human, yeah. Nature is not the problem. It's the humans. <laughs> so, right. Totally. Um, and the, the good thing in the U.S., I mean, regardless of what's happening right now with politics, which is crazy, um, the U.S. Crazy. political landscape, but the <laughs> mechanism are there to, like I said, be involved in a city council committee. <laughs> if you live it's in an apartment or a neighborhood, you have yeah. a homeowners association or some type of management group that you can go to and uh, introduce ideas. So we have more mechanisms in place to be able to influence what infrastructure and urban development look like. Totally agree. One of the gaps I've been seeing is an entrepreneurial or worker co-op sector that can meet the real scale of what those systems are going to require. In other yeah. words, are we, you know, at a, at a practical level, it's important that we incentivize these businesses because not so much that I'm a huge fan of thinking everything needs to be about business, but more a practical question of who's going to actually handle the material volume that we're talking about. If let's say one that I like to throw out as a design kind of a, you know, kind of a template to work with is New York city, New York city. We've got 3,380 tons of food scraps a day that get mm -hmm. hauled out of the city and landfilled. Right. So if you began to say, all right, how about if we take all of those food scraps and send them to anaerobic digesters that we build on brownfields throughout the five boroughs? Because those brownfields, 4,000 acres on 6,000 parcels that, you know, pouring a slab is often considered capping it and would be an adequate remediation. And then you could build anaerobic biodigesters. Well, in the United States, the entrepreneurial capacity or the public sector, government capacity, neither one are pursuing this diversion of organics from the waste stream anywhere close to the scale that is, yeah. uh, that's absolutely essential. And it partially, and then as a natural builder here, we've built, you know, several straw bale houses. We're building a hempcrete house right now. This mm -hmm. type of thing, 
I teach it yes tomorrow at design build school by Yale and MIT architects and definitely agree. One of the big things that I've focused a lot on personally is infrastructure in the built environment. And that's part of why I think I teach more about that in our design courses than having it be something that's so heavy on the pendulum towards um, food and gardening. Absolutely. The core of our civilization can't give it enough importance um, as well as women and children first and making sure that quality of life of women goes up. And um, of course, that's a focus of yours, but just want to say how much I appreciate hearing your design thinking around the redesign of that market. And uh, and again, I want to give props personally to recognizing that for me, Vandana Shiva has been such an important um, yeah. ethic, ethical teacher around this, right? Like the the eco-feminist movement and and her work around that, um, her writing around the connection between science, violence, and gender, and this this patriarchal um, problem that European society is plagued with, uh, are all things that honestly I'd say global, I learned global. from her. It's a global problem. Yeah, the patriarchy yeah. is a global that harms everyone. Right. I, that's, the important thing to remember, because uh, there are some people, <laughs> a lot of times men get really defensive when we talk about that. But what everyone needs to understand, <laughs> which I know you do, is that That's patriarchy fun. harms all people, right? It's harmful for men. It's harmful for women. So, um, yeah, and Dr. Shiva has yep. just been such a guiding light on so many, you know, and we right. just need more. We really need more Dr. Shiva's for sure. Yeah. Um, I was yeah. fortunate to be on a panel for her latest, the film that was just put out about her. There's a, a nice biography that's been done about Vandana. Yeah. It was recently released here that I was on a panel for. Um, nice. Yeah. And I think, I think what's interesting to think about at a, at a talking shop level material wise, you know, the um, Vandana's work and a lot of work in the um, food security movement has been focused on annuals. And is seed saving mm. around animals, and it's interesting to think how same same thing when I think about the robustness of the organic food movement in the United States and groups like NOFA, who I I present at their conferences. It's the Northeast Organic Farming Association. These groups are heavily focused on veggies, heritage breed heirloom breeds. Yeah. But there's very little awareness of the importance to broaden the plant palette and bring in the tree crops. I bring yeah. in bring in these tree crops, perennials, um, still very little attention to animals and yeah. and animal husbandry or whatever term we want to use, you know, um, properly taking care of animals in a way that's attentive to their needs and meets what human needs are. Right. Um, so in the United States, a big part of what we're working on education wise is this building capacity from a uh, organizational perspective, meaning trying to inspire our students to start enterprises that can actually be applied at a municipal scale, where we could come in like you're doing, it sounds to me like at a relief work scale. I'm also thinking this is an important step for rolling these types of design solutions out at a broader and and more um, rapid rate. To have yeah. it be something that, that gets out of the grassroots scale, gets we, we're still strong in that. That's our base. It's the grassroots groundswell. But also yeah. the, the more like who's getting hired to actually redesign municipalities, right? Because yeah. that's an important place to be able to leap to and have our, have our, um, our networks yeah. to feel like they're, they're getting an education that gives them some preparation to be able to engage at that level. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned enterprise and I would say it's enterprise as well as policy and the whole regulatory environment. You're talking about animal integration. And I mean, COVID was a really lost opportunity for counter shock doctrine. Had we known, had the regenerative movement known that that we were going to all be on lockdown and all this drama, that is when we start to have we need to have the policies up our sleeve that the minute another shock happens like that, that we're mm-hmm. like, no, we demand that we can grow 
poultry, that we can hold poultry in residential neighborhoods. Look at the zoning, look at the ordinances, the codes. So one thing is enterprise, but the other thing is getting really bold and demanding with legal, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, legal language about what yeah. is it we are going to tolerate and allow. I mean, I, I rarely go to the right. U.S., but I was there a year yeah. ago in Denver and um, around Christmas. And Outside of Denver, Colorado, in the outside of Boulder, there was a fire, and it, I think there was something like thirty thousand people were displaced overnight. You know, in the middle of snowstorms, we had this fire because all the houses were timber framed houses in a in a wind tunnel that didn't take mm -hmm. rocket scientists to figure out that these are just match you know match boxes. And it is yeah. inexcusable yeah. that it is allowed to be built such a hazardous way of building. I wish that the next day there was an army, a green army of people mm -hmm. demanding mm -hmm. and protesting to say, hell no, we demand that we can build cob houses, straw bale houses, rammed earth houses, right. things yeah. that, you know, do not imprison us into interior climate control and interior yeah. poor air quality, right? So uh, yeah. why, why are we ushered into the system that forces us to pay for air conditioning, pay for uh, interior heating, which mm -hmm. contribute to degenerative systems in that magical place called away, even if we don't see those energy sources. So yeah. I, just, I feel yeah. like, a, you know, there's an enterprise element of it. There's also a regulatory element of it. And so, you know, Absolutely. I think having those yeah. conversations, um, and again, just going back to the, the, the polit political efficacy in the U.S., you do have representation. There are government, uh, city council people, um, or whatever that might be. The structure is different mm -hmm. in every community. But I yep. think having those conversations, organizing, you know, um, creating networks of networks that can really push those things through. And, right. you know, still in the U.S., at least for now, um, you do have a majority rule. And, like, it's just, it's a numbers game of demanding and and getting the yep. examples and the evidence base is yep. really important. Yep. yep. Yeah, and that's part of what I've been actively doing is accruing the evidence and the examples and using those yeah. as teaching tools, right? Um but yeah, I really, really resonate with what you're saying and appreciate it. And also would want to add that largely what I see is a lack of uh, rhetoric or emphasis within the permaculture educational community on being politically engaged. In fact, yeah. I would argue that much of the rhetoric is apolitical and people come out of it thinking, well, the system is so rigged that why would I actually get involved in local politics. Politics doesn't matter at all. And I've encountered that quite a bit in the permaculture community, this notion that, you know, and I, I happen to be quite involved in politics locally because I feel, as I hear you saying, you know, it's an important leverage point. We can't underestimate how much opportunity and what is our opportunity to advocate for change and what are the leverage points that we have wherever we find ourselves to bring about that change. And yeah, in a absolutely. civil society, one of those leverage points is getting involved in what's going on with local decision making. Right. And, and that's and why I mentioned strategy, right? Yeah. And that's why I mentioned the apartment building level, right? Because yes. or, or your office, if somebody works in a yep. corporate office, um, you know, like, I mean, I was just con doing consulting for an agency, and they're like, Well, how do we how do we shift to doing regenerative programming? And I and everyone in the office is asking me this as they're drinking out of plastic cups. And I was uh -huh. like, well, right. first of all, let's, let's, let's stand back and take a look at what, what our, what are our behaviors? What are we engaging in? And whether that's internally within our own practices, our own procurement, our own expenditures, or the program, you know, the programmatic elements that we're implementing for the communities that we serve. Um, mm -hmm. Apartment building, homeowners association, you know, where, what are those waste streams? What are they doing? Where are they going? Who's collecting them? Who yep. chose that company? What, yep. are the, what are the criteria um, yep. for, for selecting that, you know, or, I mean, if it's a municipal waste management, that's a different thing, but those are, there are human beings um, <laughs> who are running those systems, mm -hmm. uh, the competitive processes for contracting, 
uh, you know, um, those systems and those vendors and service providers. You just, we need to understand the mechanics of how, how those selections are made and just start to demand that it is not enough for, yes, I mean, I, I, I worked on a project where there was a capping of a giant landfill outside of DC. Yeah, great. There was energy produced for, from that um, right. yep. landfill, but it was an afterthought. It's like, okay, well, we you know, we pooped the bed. Oh, there's steam coming off of our poop. Let's, let's leverage it. Yeah. But let's just, let's not poop the bed in the first place. So yeah. Yeah. there's a couple of different, uh, a couple of different points. Number one, I know that even at the municipal level in New York city, there are conversations about taking organic waste and converting mm -hmm. that into composting and vermicomposting for peri-urban agriculture systems. And yeah. you did also mention the, um, you know, the issue around annual seeds, which I forgot to touch on. Yeah, I mean, there's, uh, they're both very important. Reclaiming um, agrobiodiversity and seeds, which can be reproduced over and over again, totally critical. But yeah. number one, you know, we really pooped the bed in the like, you know, Neolithic or Paleolithic era when we really started to focus on annuals, right? And so creating that perennial stability for a number of reasons for, um, you know, I always joke and say that permaculture is really an anti-gravity movement, right? <laughs> um, because we're, we're trying to speed up the slowing down of, of gravity so that water nutrient can soak into the ground. Understanding right. that perennial right. stability, yep. its role in flooding, in drought, in groundwater recharge is, and not, not to mention the other, you know, soil chemistry that comes from the biology, that comes from the structure, from those indigenous native species. Um, so that's one thing, yeah. um, but just yeah. bringing it back between the, with the built environment the question is the materials that we use, and I'm sure I know you're aware of this, you know, concrete is human beings consume more concrete than food by metric ton. Number one, concrete. Number two, water. Number three, food. Okay. The concrete is totally, you know, uh, ecologically destructive to produce, and then you can never get rid of it. You can make it smaller, but you're never going to get rid of it. it. You know, we've slammed together molecules that by nature just don't re-separate, you know, and break down again. So the yeah. question is, how does that, our, the everything that goes into constructing the built environment, how does the sourcing of those aid in the regeneration and the stability, ecological stability of our bioregion. So um, with that perennial stability for building materials, for hempcrete even, you know, uh, layering in perennial stability with hemp, with all the other kinds of materials, that's when we also start to get a lot of circularity and localized bioregional, um, you know, every region needs to build right. stuff, right? Yeah. <laughs> so and how... I think Every region leverage those opportunities. Yeah. And that, that gets back to, for me, just as, uh, you know, um, wanting to see more of it happen. What I was starting to touch on, I don't think I finished that point, was that um, there's very few builders who know anything about working with these materials. So to me, again, there's like this, there's this training question that keeps coming up. We, yeah. We've got to train up. The, we've got to train up many, many people, as many people are, as are getting trained by land grant universities right now in chemical agribiz, right? We've still got, we're still dealing with in the United States, places like Penn State and Cornell. Cornell still, people have all kinds of misconceptions about Cornell here and what kind of player they are. And it's like, they're a land grant university that's been part of agribusiness since they were created. That's what they were created for, was to roll out industrial agriculture. <laughs> And so, so now in the U.S., you have people who want to do something sustainable or for agroforestry or regenerative. They want to do these things through some sort of, um, you know, Cornell advocacy or some other program. And the there's a, there's a lack of appropriate application of, as you were referring to it, these different technologies, right? Traditional modalities are vastly underappreciated and underrecognized in the United States. The whole attitude here is industrialism or die. 
so we're dying yeah. right <laughs> it's yeah. like let's just maybe maybe um a slow death that we could somewhat mitigate and make more money off of as the patient dies is basically like what i see as the the design mentality in the yeah. united states and, and much of what we're um working against and to diffuse as educators is this presupposition that industrialization is the is the most advanced most uh intelligent way for us to feed ourselves house ourselves clothe ourselves and so uh, you know here um covid precipitated a big rush out to the country and that since people are sort of eco-conscious who are doing that often they're now building, you know, geothermal HVAC system, passive house, zip tie, plywood chipboard um, monstrosities, paying top dollar. Uh, architectural firm coming out of New York City, running yeah. the scheme of it. Right. This is this is basically what people consider eco right now. And when you yeah. try to compete with that as a natural builder in the real marketplace, you get into this nuts and bolts problem, one of which is not financials. We can charge the square yeah. footed costs that people are charging for a passive house and, and have a very equitable pay rate for a natural building crew. It has to do with a lack of contractors who know anything about this or could care about it, right? Or architects, yeah. right? They're, they're all okay. in, this, in this world of like, well, we're just going to pay engineers and do something that's this total technocratic thing. And, and they truly have swallowed the pill as well, that there is something yeah. eco about a net zero grid tie, massive solar array powering every, you know, component of a living space, rather than the living space passively providing you with some kind of, and you get into this thing too here, that's yeah. kind of funny not to get irritated by which is the misconception around the word passive, right? Mm -hmm. Because passive house, the branded, trademarked, copyrighted building envelope design that comes out of Germany, H-A-U-S, is what most people now in this part of the country think you mean when you say passive. Yeah. <laughs> they don't, don't even understand what, what would a passive building envelope look like? So there's a lack of interest in the contractor sector. There's yeah. a lack of interest in the building community. And so in many areas, we're doing an educational push because so many of these things come back to just a lack of awareness of how yeah. else would you do, how else can you do things, right? Well, it's because I think that um, one thing that got hijacked for people in the U.S., the average citizen, is this, you know, this uh, narrative that um, the environmental action is at the consumer level and it's about the outputs the downstream so you know a consumer will buy a thing and be like okay where does this go from here not where did it come from the upstream focus is not there so you know yeah. when people i think what you're describing is that people are like okay well i'm gonna just build a house and then i'm gonna build it in conventional ways not thinking of the upstream procurement and sourcing but i, I want i'm gonna use a bunch of upstream degenerative crap to create something to reduce my downstream uh, footprint mm -hmm. and that's yeah. a very uh, yeah. corporate yeah. <laughs> Team, um to you know it's like oh well human beings like we're gonna by recycling our coke bottles we're gonna save the world right the accountability mm -hmm. higher up in the system is totally not there so right. i think that the upstream focus about where where are the materials coming from where is the energy right. like look, look at the electrical car people are like right. oh electric car sounds great no idiot yeah. it, where is that energy source coming from you know yeah. uh, when they talk about diet nutrition there's a saying that says you know with everything that you eat you have to ask yourself am i feeding disease or am i feeding health Th yes. there's nothing in between right yeah. uh, <laughs> everything yeah. that you put in your mouth is either feeding disease or feeding health right, right. and and it's yeah. the same thing with all of our actions not just our own body but whatever you know, and of course, I mean, I'm hypocritically, I've got my iPhone here and my iMac, you know, because uh, I'm still trying to function within the system that we're in. Yeah. But these exactly. are the questions that we have to be asking ourselves. You know, um, I offended a bunch of people at the Dutch embassy here at one point because um, they they fund projects 
in Congo. Everybody, you know, all the donors fund projects in Congo. This is not a statement about the Dutch government. Mm -hmm. But, you know, creating humanitarian programs in Congo, Democrat DRC, um, and then talking about, oh, well, we should build sustainable humanitarian offices in Congo and, and give people funding to have solar power as their electrical source. Okay, I love that. Um, the the minerals required for photovoltaics are literally what is creating conflict in Congo that is causing tens of thousands of women to be gang raped every single day. So that's not the circular economy we're looking for, right? We don't need to, we, ha we have to go upstream and say, where is, what are the sources of this product or this innovation that we're coming in? And how does that continue to contribute to the problem of, you know, photovoltaics and Congo are a disaster story, right? A disaster story. So it is important for people to care, number one, care, give a hoot. Number two, be able to pull their heads out of the Kardashians or football or US spectator sports or whatever that bread yeah. and circus is. Pull your head out of that bread and circus and start to ask questions about my human actions, what my consumerism, where is that coming from? What impact is that having? So, um, you know, and I, I think in the US that just really does not happen uh, that much. And what I was gonna say, oh, I mentioned earlier, you know, it's as I tell agencies here, we don't need to do different things because they're like, well, this is our mandate. We provide food, shelter and water and sanitation and protection for displaced communities. We're not an environmental agency. And I tell them, you don't have to do different things, but do things differently. You already said you're providing shelter, housing, water, sanitation. So how can you do that in a way that both mitigates and adapts to climate change, right? So, um, you know, you talked about vocation um, and the training, you know, we don't need to create new programs and decide satellite underground speakeasies about Cobb. <laughs> like we, we've got a system in place. We have education and vocational training centers. So we don't need to do different things. We just need to, those things to be done differently. So, you know, that's going to look different in Ohio than New York City versus yep. Tucson. So, right. you know, you know, you'll, somebody will, you know, have that voice. Who are the community colleges or the local training centers? Mm -hmm. I would say in the U.S. we do have more um, uh, formal institutions. Look at Andrew Millison, Oregon State University, others that are now coming up and formalizing permaculture as an institutional offering. So mm -hmm. uh, change is not linear and it does take time, but I think it's happening. I see yeah. so much happening all the time. Absolutely. Yeah, totally concur. Well, really appreciate you taking the time, Natalie, and I'm, I'm inspired to have you join in our course. I look forward to keeping up the connection and perhaps collaborating on some other projects. Um, I would welcome that. So please keep me in mind as somebody who you yeah. can who you can tap for any input that it seems like I could offer that's relevant on projects or I just enjoy talking shop even. So if you have design things that you're getting into, um, these are all systems that also I uh, have a lot of fondness for the biodigesters, integrating things, thinking thoroughly yeah. about water and and designing for villages and for communities. And at that that broader yeah. application, I think is is so important and and just so great to hear about the projects and the work that you're doing. And yeah, I, I really, uh, I just, I appreciate all the, a lot of the different viewpoints. I, I like the, the slowing down gravity, I think is such a good metaphor to think about broadly. So much in, in this design approach is about, oh, a more reasonable relationship with energy and with each other. And to realize, yeah. you know, we 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 have the power, we have the capacity as the people to provide for ourselves, and I think that that um, is an important piece of the puzzle: is giving people that sense of having the keys and having ownership of our yeah. 
of our direction of and of our destinies. And it's, it's about coordinating our behaviors and, um, and visions. Yep. Yeah. Any, I think there's nothing that we can't create. It, it, there's nothing. Impossible is a human invention, right? But look at all of the systems that we would complain about. Look at what, uh, have you watched this uh, um, documentary called Taken for a Ride about how no. General Motors dismantled uh, the trolley system in the West Coast, um, oh, which yes. was a reliable thing that everybody loved. So somebody there had a vision, right? right. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, right. It was a self-serving vision, profit-driven vision, but yep. the wars, the, the the death, the atrocities, the brutality, the apartheids that are happening right now all around the world are someone's vision. You know, so the bad things are getting resources and vision and energy. So we just, we've got to keep up the, the good fight and the, the positive visions, the positive uh, things that we know are possible. We, you know, we've just got to keep marching forward and try and keeping those conversations alive, keeping looking for resources, uh, because that is just as possible as all the negative things that are happening. So thanks yeah. a lot, Andrew. And um, yeah. I will say the position that I'm hoping to, you know, that be starting in the next month or two, uh, it's going to be a, a, a whole different bag for me at a yep. different scale, um, yep. but it should be really exciting, including urban and rural things globally. Um, so it'll be exciting to keep the conversation alive with you. Yeah, please definitely think of me as a, as a resource and ally and somebody who would just be excited to work with you in some team projects for sure. Uh, I also want to mention as we're wrapping up that we have recently launched a project that we're calling the Permaculture Living Lands Trust that I would mm -hmm. really appreciate having a conversation with you and my colleagues who I'm starting that with, one of whom is uh, Lisa DePiano, who has a master's in urban planning and teaches permaculture at University okay. of Massachusetts. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So we, yeah, we've started a 501c3 that the main focus of is to Basically, you know, to not spend a lot of time right here, but for another conversation, uh, protect, preserve permaculture designed sites and landscapes, because we're right. seeing that some of the tree crops and perennial crops, especially, can be a real loss if the land doesn't have proper legal status when it comes to yeah. the, uh, you know, in perpetuity and looking at the strength of easements in the conservation sector and how yeah. to bring those strengths to the permaculture work of perennial landscapes. And so. on that note, um, it, uh, just remembering that within the U.S. you have COGS, Council of Governments, that are interregional, and that's mm -hmm. a whole other space that people don't tend to um, know about or think about as a leverage point. So COGS, C-O-G, is Council of Governments, and that's, you know, where, where you have boundaries meeting there's these are cross-boundary talks within the national planning landscape in the u.s um so i would just say at every scale you've got to have people hitting and hitting or there's a non-violent way of saying you know nurturing those conversations yeah yeah <laughs> those levels yeah. as well so, yeah absolutely yeah and the regional planning education i'm excited to talk with you more about ways that we can uh, expand on that because i think that's it's a very important vision and work sector to be bringing to the broader community that permaculture and your experience and background is uniquely suited to informing that type of work. So really just so great yeah. to meet you, Natalie. Likewise. I'm Andrew Faust. This is Permaculture Perspectives podcast. Thanks for listening. To find out more about our upcoming programming, Go to permaculturenewyork.com and follow the links in the description to this episode for more information about Natalie Topa's work and some of the references that were made in the program. We'll be finding articles about and including there. So enjoy. <laughs>